0: Well, welcome everybody to the second episode of the Riddles in the Dark Super Supererogatory. I'm Laura Burkholtz and I'm here with the illustrious Tolkien professor, Corey Olson. And we're here to go above and beyond with this episode of Super Supererogatory. This is a deluxe episode because we have a conversation uh, with Professor Robin Reed and Corey Olson at the end of that, uh, that we'd be putting on the end of our broadcast today.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's one of the two things I'm really excited about with Riddles in the Dark, uh, super derogatory, is uh, that we'll get the chance on several occasions to have special guests, um, you know, with whom we can have, you know, to, to sort of get their you know, input and feedback about some of the things we've been talking about. And, uh, uh, and so, yes, in today's episode, at the end of today's episode, we will have a, a discussion that I had with Dr. Robin Reed uh, who is actually uh, in the middle of writing an article on Toriel. Uh, so she had some really interesting things to say about that. Um, so that will come right at the end, right after uh, my discussion with Laura. She couldn't join us live here today. Um, but uh, uh, but we uh, we will include that right after our discussion here. But of course, the other thing that I'm really excited about uh, for Super Derogatory is getting the chance to uh, interact more uh, with your questions and comments. I know that a lot of people can't make our live, session uh when we record riddles in the dark and and have a lot of really interesting things to say or a lot of really interesting ideas uh that they submit afterwards when they listen to the recording um and of course we never get to talk about those during the live riddles in the dark sessions so it's really great to be able to go back and interact with some of the things that you guys have have sent in added uh since we recorded the episode so i'm really i'm really excited for the opportunity there
0: Yeah, plus, as Trish just reminded me, we have a do-over today, (laughs) because uh, we had a few technical issues in the last episode. We had covered the second episode of Riddles in the Dark, um, but today we're going to rehash that.
1: Yeah, and I think we've gotten one or two more comments since then anyway, so, you know, all's well that... Ends better, Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We had a a a little failure halfway through last, a little more than halfway through last time. So yes, no problem. We will talk about that stuff again, Uh, and that'll be good. Um, So yeah, very good. So so I think that's what that's what we were going to start with today, right? This is riddle two from.
0: Riddles in the Dark, Season 3. Yep. So Riddle 2 is, What stand will Legolas and Tariel take regarding the Siege of Erebor? And the potential answers are, um, A, neither openly defies Thranduil, which is the book answer, with two characters who aren't in the book, as much as that can be the book answer. Uh, B, Legolas supports his father. Tariel openly defies him. C, Tariel supports Thranduil, Legolas defies him, and D both openly defy Thranduil and Corey. I believe you said D on this one. That's right. Yes, they both openly defy Thranduil, and uh, you know, I after thinking about it, and since I have an extra week to think about it, I'm going to also say D because, which I don't think I said at first. I think I, I think I had B, but since I, I'm not official yet. I can say I can change to D. So I I think um you know for the just to add to the dramatic tension of the movie I think he's going to have them both defying Thranduil and both both making Thranduil see the light as it were and become become that person who says, you know, I don't remember the exact quote but um basically that he's does not want to start a war over gold.
1: Yes, yes. Long shall I tarry ere I begin this war for gold? Yes. That's right.
0: We need a little bit uh of something to get Thranduil from his movie position to the book his, his stand in the book on the war. So I th- I think the defiance of his son and Tariel is going to is going to get him where he uh
1: yeah, it is or so fascinating to, to me the way oh. in which, um, thren- the way in which at times the film seems to recapitulate, um, sort of developments of the story that happened in manuscript mode. I don't really have any genuine idea of how, how closely I mean, I know they're reading the books. the The producers are reading the book very carefully, and other supporting Middle Earth books. I don't know how much time they've spent with John Ratliff's history of the Hobbit. I mean, of course, it certainly. Uh, you know, I would expect that Philip Boyens at least has read it. I feel relatively confident. I, I seem to remember an interview in which Peter Jackson basically professed ignorance about the earlier drafts of the Hobbit. I don't think he knows about them. Um, so I, I. I f- i might be wrong about that um i might be misremembering um but that is to say you know i don't necessarily believe that in moments when they're doing things in the film which tolkien also did in his earlier versions that then then sort of moved away from them I, I it might be chance or not quite chance but the story developing along you know, them thinking along different lines in for the same, for similar reasons to Tolkien thinking along different lines, uh, originally. But to me, looking at the development of the Elven King, you know, when you go back and you look at the at the, the first versions of the story and then how that developed, it's just fascinating to me because basically that's exactly the drama that you can see. The drama playing out not through the course of the story, but through the course of the revision of the story. That the Elven King started as a real jerk. I mean, he, his, in, in the first, not quite complete, but the first sketched out version of the end of the story, you know, of the Siege of the Lonely Mountain, um, uh, Thranduil's whole plan was to, uh, to capture and execute Thorin and company. I mean, you know, there's, in the book, in the published book, uh, he doesn't think that Thorin and the dwarves are alive. Um, and he's surprised to find them when they get to the mountain. Um, in that first sketched out version, he knew full well that they were there. And his 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 consciously articulated plan was, um, let's take these dwarves, kill them all, and take the treasure for ourselves. And the whole drama of the end of the story <laughs> yeah. is Bilbo offers uh, the Arkenstone in order to try to ransom them. Basically, he says, I'll give you this if you promise not to kill my friends and let them go. Um, so anyway, you know, and, and, and it's, 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 so it's very striking, I think, when you look at the book, how far the Elven King was from that exact statement, Laura, you know, from long shall I tarry ere I begin this war for gold. His character over, uh, you know, uh, undergoes a pretty significant transformation in Tolkien's mind from the earlier stages uh, of writing to the later. And so it's kind of fascinating to me to see the sort of parallels between the way they've done Thranduil in the film and uh you know, some of the similarities uh with his uh with his whole outlook and attitude in the earlier stages of the Hobbit stories. I say I'm not I'm not necessarily saying that I believe that they're doing that consciously, uh, but it's really kind of interesting. Um but um anyway, so yeah, I I, I do think I do expect there to be a sort of a shift though. Because you're right. I mean, that version of the Elven King and in particular, that line, that's a really memorable line, and a lot of readers are going to remember that line, and, and it sounds like the kind of thing, I wouldn't even be surprised to hear that line be uttered in film three. Um, but it might be in a different context. I, I, I would be fascinated. Um, here's a, here, here, here's a little prediction. I would bet, I could, I could see Thranduil delivering that line, um, but basically, being insincere, you know, it's just like he says what he says in the book, but we as, we, we, we as viewers, uh, don't believe it. You know, think that he's, that he's lying, you know, that he's just fronting basically. Um, I could easily, I could easily imagine that, but we'll see. Uh, you know, th- the other thing that I'm remembering from the book is the conversation between Bilbo and Thranduil at the end. Um, and, you know, when the Elven King has already expressed you know admiration of bilbo during their uh during their conversation you know when bilbo is handing over the arkenstone um but um but at the same time there's that last conversation they have then when bilbo gives him the white gems in the book which of course in the book don't have all that much significance but anyway he gives him uh you know that uh that the jewels that he was given by dan at his departure and um uh you know a little 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 uh a little regifting by bilbo <clears throat> at the end and um he and and he is blessed a bilbo is blessed uh by the elven king and this seems to be, by the way, when the the moment when Bilbo is officially named an elf friend. You know, that's 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 kind of in late. You know, later on in the in the Fellowship of the Ring, that's kind of a big deal. You know, when you have been officially named an elf friend, yes. um, and that seems to be the moment. Thranduil seems to be the one who has, or excuse me, the Elven King. He's not named in the book. Um, is is yeah, seems to be the one who names Bilbo an elf friend. It's a, it's a it's a big moment. I'm wondering though. Um, whether that scene might actually come back and have, uh, more significance, a different kind of significance, uh, in the film, if that might be a moment, um, where of, of change in Thranduil's character, you know, sort of a final sort of, uh, 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 turning around moment, uh, for Thranduil, if, if there might be some parallel to that, um, because I agree with you, I I, I do agree that we're going to get some kind of trajectory in in Thranduil's character here. He's not just going to be the villainous guy.
0: Yeah, it's going to have to be a a pretty big character arc, though. I mean, that's that's from what we have now with Thranduil to you know the the kinder, gentler Thranduil that we see um, at the end of the Hobbit. That's that's a pretty big step yes. for the movies. So. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's going
0: to have to be something drastic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I agree. I think
0: that's that's going to have to um, make that change in him.
1: Yeah. I agree. Tom Hillman points out he says that movie Thranduil might prove dangerous for reasons other than a desire for wealth. There's a darkness about him that isn't in the book. I agree, though. Well, at least Tom, I'd say it's 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 ambivalent, at least, right? I mean, his that scene with the captive orc. Um, is a really interesting one and i still don't yet fully get how we're supposed to take that um I, because on the one hand thranduil seems motivated by a genuine fear of i read it as fear of the rise of sauron that you know his striking out at the goblin looked to be you know his decapitation of the goblin looked to be a i don't want to i really 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 don't want to hear this so i want to shut him up right now um kind of reflex on his part um but um but that moment is obviously so i mean if there's one moment in the entire second film which has, sends up the biggest red flags for um for Thranduil's character that's the moment right you know when he when he parallels as a uh uh mythgard student Alyssa House Thomas pointed out parallels Sauron in the Silmarillion with Gorlim, right? When, you know, when he promises to Gorlim that, you know, the traitor of, of, of Baron and, and, and Barahir, uh, promises him that he, uh, that he will keep, that he'll keep him and reunite him with his wife, right? And, uh, and, and if, if he tells him what he wants him to tell him, and then Gorlim does and he kills him and says, I will now reunite you with your wife. I mean, the the, the same kind of rationale, um, you know, uh, Thranduil says I said I would let him go. So I did let him go by killing him and it's like, man, that's uncomfortable. That is that is really really uh ominous and sinister rationale right there. Um, but of course as I say, it's a, it's potentially ambivalent. It might be just fear. It might, you know, he might be prodded to an act of, of of irrational terror um but it might be something worse you know it's it's one could read that scene in in a bunch of different ways including i think potentially you know a, a, alliance i mean it's something like i did not want him to betray like the truth about Sauron's return i mean i i'm not saying that i believe that the elven king is going to turn out to be a secret minion of Sauron but if he did it could be made consistent with that with that scene i mean that scene to me was 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 that potentially sinister that it could support that reading um even though i don't believe that that reading is going to turn out to be correct uh, it, it was it was as bad yeah. as that so i certainly agree with tom that there are there's a, there's 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 more than just greed to the elven king in the film
0: yeah i th- i thought that scene um, I mean, it was a little over the top, but I thought that was a good illustration of the more dangerous and less wise. Um, you know, a big contrast with Thranduil versus Galadriel, for instance. And, you know, I read it more as he just wants to keep his isolationist policies. He doesn't want uh, Legolas to, to find out that there's potentially... Um, this this big problem and have legolas wanting to go after it you know i I think he just wants to hide the truth i guess from his son even though he has suspicions of it himself
1: yes good that's 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 pretty much how i took it too you know that basically if he he's scared for one thing but then also yeah he he doesn't want an argument like, oh, man, like this is going to open up such a big can of worms. Right. You know, the whole like, uh, you know, these people <laughs> who have been arguing that we should go out and fight against the evil are going to have now all this extra ammunition to use if they get the whole. But wait, the dark one is taking shape again. Uh, you know, if they can now add that to their to their arguments, I'll never hear the end of this thing. So, uh, yeah, no, no, I agree. That was definitely something um uh, something that I was. Uh, uh, that I, that I was, that I was, that I was interested to see. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, Pete, uh, Ritzer makes a really good point here, you know, that, uh, Thranduil gives the movie-only audience, uh, their first look at not-so-angelic elves. And it's certainly true. Um, in fact, I would even, uh, Pete go so far as to say, uh, he gives, uh, even non-Silmarillion Tolkien readers uh, their first look at not so angelic elves. Um, we don't really get that in the Lord of the Rings. Um, you have to read the Silmarillion if you want to see elves that go bad, um and uh, you know, act badly and uh if, with corrupt motives and everything. I mean I can't uh I don't think we see that anywhere um in the Lord of the Rings. In the Lord of the Rings, um we are I mean, honestly, Galadriel is the only elf that we meet who acts a little bit sketchy. Um, and and even that we are encouraged not to uh, uh, interpret as as too much sketchiness, but certainly not like this. Um, so, yeah, so if you haven't read The Silmarillion, you might be under the impression, and certainly I agree with Pete, if you've only seen the films, you might be under the impression that elves are just... Uh, you know, as, as he says, angelic, you know, that they're just, uh, they're just all good and there's not, there's not even any conflict within them. Um, that, that they, they're, they're not even tempted to do, to do, uh, to do evil. Um, but we know that that isn't the case. So yeah, I agree with Pete. I think that that's, that's actually a really interesting choice by them. Um, yeah, Molly adds, uh, Molly Hester adds, seeing a bad elf might give the Jackson audience an intro, uh, into, uh, into bad wizards and Saruman. Um, yeah, it does sort of introduce the spectrum there that we can see that there's, that there's, because, I mean, as, as Tolkien shows, you know, there's this, there's this potential in almost everybody, you know, that, uh, everyone who is, you know, nothing was evil in the beginning, you know, everything that is evil went bad at some point and, uh, uh, and, and that all of them can. So, yeah, that's, uh, I think that's a really important point.
0: All right. Well, we should probably move on to comments on Riddles in the Dark 3.02. And we actually have a recorded comment from Stephen Johnson.
2: Greetings from Columbia, Missouri. My name is Stephen Johnson. I hope you all have enjoyed my Saturday morning pancakes just as much as I have enjoyed listening to the Riddles in the Dark podcast while creating them. Uh, my comment slash question this week has to do with uh, the role of Legolas in the films. Um, I really felt that Legolas in the in the second film was a, really a flat character. Uh, he just kind of robotically went about killing all the orcs. As, uh, he was more or less a jerk uh, to everybody involved. And I hope that we're going to see some character development for him in the third film. Uh, because... He's a little jerky toward the Dwarves in the beginning of Fellowship, but he's not. After that, he seems like a a great guy. So are we going to see any sort of development that is going to estrange him from his dad? Because right now, he just seems like he's a chip off the old block. Um, Thanks for listening, and uh, let me know if you all have any suggestions for future pancakes. Bye.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because, well, yeah, on the one hand, These kinds of daddy issues were something that Peter Jackson was really good at in the Lord of the Rings film. I mean, I thought that, you know, and I've said both of these things on many occasions before, that although I really disliked. Uh, the br- The bringing down of Faramir in the Lord of the Rings films um i I just cannot approve of the treatment of Faramir at the same time. I do give him credit for bringing out something that really was there in the book and that I thought he di- he did he did really well with um much though I dislike the general changes of Faramir and Denethor's characters in the films the way that he brought out faramir's daddy issues faramir does have daddy issues in the book that's all there um it's just that in the book you have a very noble guy having daddy issues whereas in the film you had a less noble guy having daddy issues Mm. but the daddy issues were totally there and uh and and i thought that the way that uh, Jackson spotlighted, I liked the way that Jackson spotlighted that in the film. Um, because I, 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 felt that that was really powerful. And it's something, Faramir is so noble that you can miss it. You know, it's, it's very possible to sort of skim over how greatly he is impacted. You know, how much he has been hurt. And it's clear that he has, uh, very much been hurt. Even the kind of implicit parallel between um, you know, basically, when Deneth, when, when Faramir and Eowyn are meeting in the Houses of Healing, um, again, it's tempting, Faramir is so awesome that it's tempting to look at that as Eowyn needs help, right? And here's Faramir reaching out to Eowyn and healing her. And of course, to some extent, that yeah. is what's happening, but they're both injured. And not only are they both injured, they're both wounded. They're both psychologically wounded and in, not exactly the same ways, but in kind of similar ways. I mean, they both have been isolated. They both have yeah. felt like they don't belong. They both have, you know, cons- you know, self doubts and concerns about their self worth, and have been trying to 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 sort of establish themselves and define themselves, and 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 prove to themselves and to the and to others that they are worth something. I mean, the the they, you know the kind of empathy between the two of them and the parallel between their position again is something that we can lose because he's so strong
0: and they both uh just lost their fathers too yeah
1: exactly or in a exactly. case her her father figure right absolutely um so anyway i, I just I, I thought that that was you know as i say though i certainly can't approve on the whole i thought that he did a really interesting uh thing with that therefore and this is this is turning around to be relevant now eventually um I think it will be really interesting to see how he <laughs> handles Legolas and Thranduil in this way. Um, Because, you know, to me thinking about how he is in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. um I mean, I certainly do agree that Legolas in the second film was not nearly so compelling a character. I mean, kind of, To put that in a different context, imagine the Lord of the Rings films had never been. Imagine that the Hobbit films were the, were the beginning. Now that's hard to imagine in several different directions, but if we, if we imagine that, um, if there had been no Lord of the Rings films, but only Hobbit films, would the cult of Orlando Bloom ever have grown out of this film? And I think no it would not have. I can't imagine it would have. Um, Legos's appearance and his performance in this second film might please the already well-established legion of Orlando Bloom as Lego's fans, but I can't imagine it would have generated them had they did not exist. Um, so I certainly agree that Legolas, uh you know, uh, 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 Orlando Bloom did not seem to be at his best uh, in the second film. I didn't think either. Um, but Um, nevertheless, I did kind of like objectively the position that Legolas was put in the way in which he was positioned in the screenplay, at least, even if perhaps not so effectively, uh, in the performance, but, um, since he was positioned, at that in that central point i mean in, in a sense he's the pivotal he's he's made into the pivotal character you know with thranduil on one side and and toriel on the other and the two of them you know uh, uh, occupying the separate poles and legolas is the kind of swing vote in the middle um and uh you know i mean i think i've, I've said this before in 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 one of our earlier episodes that um you know there's a way in which that whole um, you know, the whole Thranduil and Toriel thing ends up being kind of, you know, this sort of conflict within the elven culture that we're shown through those two characters ends up being kind of characterized as if it were a battle for the heart and mind of Legolas um, there in film two. So the, the that position that he occupies, I think, is really important and really interesting. I really like it. Um, but where exactly does that mean it's going to go? You know, where is he... Um, where is he going to end up? Is he going to end up estranged from Thrandul at the end? Are they going to come together? Is Thrandul going to move to him? Um, you know, I, that's going to be, uh, I mean, I, 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 you know, in my answer to the riddle, um, I did say that I think that, that Legolas is going to openly defy Thranduil. Um, so I think that there is going to be a rift. I'm not sure whether or not that rift is going to be healed at the end or whether it's just going to be kind of uncomfortable um you know and because yeah. that could work potentially but i don't know
0: yeah it's uh it it's tough to speculate because it's it's something that's completely not in the book whatsoever i mean legless isn't even in the book so that we really don't have a lot right. of data to...
1: right. yeah there we have yeah there we really only have the lord of the rings to go on yeah yeah, yeah. so
0: okay well, let's move on to the next comment, and that's from Jennifer Koshim. She says, I think Legolas's experience at Dol Guldur, where he seems headed, will lead him to change Thranduil's mind, which is not open defiance, I think, though Tariel's pro-dwarf feelings will bring her into conflict with Thranduil in the lead-up to...
1: Uh, to uh, the would-be battle of three armies, yeah. To yeah. the would-be... Yeah.
0: Okay. I was try- I have a hard I was having a little hard time figuring out what that uh, stood for there. Uh whether it'll lead to openly defy him or just argue with him is hard to say. So I'm toying between A and B. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps A with Keely and Tariel going back physically to their respective camps, but both arguing with their leaders against the coming conflict. Well that's an interesting It is. You know, and, uh, so Keeley would go back to the dwarves. Yeah. Yeah. Tariel to, to the L's and Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, um I could see this, that is to say, I and, and I agree with Jennifer, if Legolas comes back and, you know, in private counsel convinces his father to change his his stand, that would not be open defiance. That that, that absolutely um uh she's 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 completely right about that. And you know, I can see that. What I can't see is Legolas just going along with Randul? um, you know, with Randul saying, um, yeah, I, I'm like on the fringes of being evil and I want to like attack the dwarves and take the mountain and the treasure for ourselves. I can't see Legolas being cool with that. Um, Uh, In fact, even just the step that he's already taken to defy his father in going after Toriel seems to me to, you know, set him down this path which he would have to turn away from at this point. I mean, he'd have to make a radical change backwards um, to where he was at the beginning of the second film in order to end up at a place where he's not going to oppose Thranduil at all. But Jennifer's idea that he could just basically argue with Thranduil in private, you know, that he can, that, that he might persuade Thranduil to change his mind, um, rather than simply openly defying him. Um, that, that I could see. I still don't expect it, but I could see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Pete says that, uh, Legolas is no Faramir, who would say, yes, father, whatever you say, choke, choke, sob, sob. Yes, yes, it's true. That's pretty much what movie Faramir would say, I think. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I still think of the, I still think of the, the tremble in his lip when he delivered that line, you know, but if I return, think better of me, father. Um, yeah, yeah, you're, I, <laughs> Legolas is going to have exactly those daddy issues. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Now that's an interesting idea. Tom points out that uh, that if this happened, th- it would be a parallel of Arwen's changing Elrond's mind in the Lord of the Rings films. That is an that is an interesting observation.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Also, Sandra's point. I think is, is although words... not. Ex... Sorry, go ahead. Go. Oh yeah. Go ahead, Laura.
0: Yeah, I, I want to apologize. We have a tiny bit of a delay between yeah, Corey's feed yeah. and my feed, so that's why there's there can be a little bit of confusion. So, um, yeah, I was just thinking about Arwen's changing of Elrond's mind um, in the Lord of the Rings movies, and uh, I don't think it's going to be exactly like that. So, um, I mean, Arwen, Arwen sort of changes... Elrond's mind because she becomes she starts becoming human or, or loses her immortality I guess in the Liberty of the Rings movies and and I think Elrond kind of throws in the towel at that point and says okay we better get behind this <laughs> so right. um, but uh, yeah I I don't know and I don't think it's going to be just Legolas that changes Thranduil's mind I think there's going to be something else too that happens that uh, that gets Thranduil to to see the light, as it were. Yeah. So, oh yeah, and Sandra says that Legolas comes to Rivendell at the behest of his father at, at in the um, Fellowship of the Ring. From from this, it can perhaps be inferred that Thranduil has dropped his isolationist policy. Yeah, and I think we we can say that for sure.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. Um, it, it is true. Sandra hadn't been thinking of it in those terms, but that's absolutely right. If we think about Um, what kind of situation is demanded by continuity with the Fellowship of the Ring film, as far as this goes? You know, I still think there isn't necessarily much that we need to see in in Legolas's character. You know, I mean, we've talked some, uh, you know, at, at various points about issues like Legolas's relationship with dwarves and and whatnot, but you know, I think that there's a lot of ambiguity about that i mean it's clear that he's annoyed with the dwarves at the beginning but you know you know that he doesn't trust them but that doesn't seem that it needs to have any particular setup and as uh people were pointing out in our previous episode he's already not trusting dwarves in the second hobbit film so he doesn't have anywhere to go as far as that goes um but but sandra's right um thranduil does appear you know he's a non-character obviously in uh in the lord of the Rings films um but if there's but but the idea to imagine thranduil as we have gotten him so far you know in this second film sending legolas to rivendell to take part in what's going on it does seem like a a change does need to happen there
0: yeah okay well let's go on to um the uh, the last comment actually on this episode and that's from Ollie Lynn another great episode One thing which I'm sorry didn't get any discussion is Peter Jackson's depiction of the elves as super ninja warrior killing machines who just mow down orcs like grass. If the elves were so super awesome at fighting goblins, surely there would be none left to trouble the people of (laughs) Middle-earth. Also, on the subject of elves fighting and implications of Galadriel coming to Gandalf's rescue in film 3, I'm wondering if we'll see her wielding a sword and taking names, or if we'll get an authentic Tolkien song battle Finrod style. I'm guessing it'll be the sword, but I live in hope. <laughs> I think we all live in hope for that one.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Um, I don't know if that hope is going to be fulfilled. Though I, I, I honestly, I kind of expect to see both. Do I think we're going to see Goadriel with a weapon of some kind in her hands, possibly a sword? Yes, I do think we will see that. I don't think they are going to just make it a pure, all-out, you know, <clears throat> Finrod Luthian style combat on her part, where she just, you mm-hmm. know, <clears throat> comes walking up to Dol Guldur, uh, you know, in a plain white dress with nothing in her hands and just, like, starts singing or, uh, you know, and uh, it would be awesome. I, I, I don't expect that. However... um I don't expect it just to be completely transmuted into physical power either. Um, I don't expect to see, so, although I wouldn't expect to see the full Luthian, I also would not expect to see Goadrio coming in, you know, in like a leather cat suit or something and, uh, uh, you know, taking out Orcs ninja style. I don't think that's gonna happen either. Um, I, I would expect it to be somewhere in the middle, frankly, but, um, but yeah, we'll see. You know, it, yeah. It's interesting that Ali brings up, you know, the battle between Finrod and Sauron, because that's a scene which is obvious, obviously right there as a parallel, right? And I suspect we're going to be induced to remember that. You'll notice there have been a couple times when they've done things like that in the Hobbit films. They can't actually use Silmarillion material right so they're they're not officially using Silmarillion material but that business with um, Thranduil when you know Thorin is before Thranduil um you know that speech that he gives about like uh you know I too desire a gem um i mean nobody who knows the silmarillion could resist thinking of the parallel between thranduil and thingol there um you know when thingol demands the silmaril so um i i i would not be at all surprised if we get some kind of invocation of the luthien sauron moment um from the silmarillion which is not actionable but which uh but but which will be noticeable uh uh to people who 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 know the books. So I would not be at all surprised to see that, sort of in the in yeah. the similar spirit.
0: And Tom Hellman says, uh, what I'm hoping for is to hear her say to Sauron, You killed my brother, prepare to die. <laughs> so that's probably not going to happen.
1: Oh, and what a shame too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Even if she didn't say yeah, it in like because, a Spanish accent, still.
0: Yeah, that's right. Because Finrod is her was her brother.
1: Absolutely, yeah. No, that's uh, that would be. In fact, in fact, uh, wait, quick, Tom, get on that. That has to be a T-shirt, right? Uh, uh, you know, w- w- get like an image of Galadriel, you know, confronting Sauron. You know, you killed my brother. Prepared to die. That's that's totally. Uh, that, 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 that absolutely (laughs) sounds like a t-shirt. I love Um, it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sharon asks, (laughs) will Galadriel use her ring? Uh, I fear that she will. Um, I hope not, but I, it's hard. I, I mean, Nenya is not a weapon, you know, I mean, it's not a, it's, 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 it's not something you'd use in combat like that, but you know, I don't know. Um, Especially following up from Gandalf's confrontation with Sauron, you know where we had <clears throat> the the confrontation of wills between Gandalf and Sauron, and that is so obviously what it was. And and you know, as I have said before, I really, I really genuinely admire peter jackson for depicting that the way that he did i mean it does seem to be that whole light versus you know the like clingy inky shadowy thing that was going on there between gandalf and the necromancer in film two that seems to be a genuine honest attempt to visually depict the kind of conflict of wills that a real magical conflict in tolkien is you know what that really boils down to um and i thought that it was you know i mean lots of people sort of make fun of it but um uh but i thought that it was but, but i again i i felt that it was a really interesting attempt in the light of that so to speak i think um i i'll be interested to see what he does with goadriel i you know if he just recapitulates that if if her if 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 we're getting some kind of probably different variation visually on it. But if we're getting a similar kind of conflict of will between her and uh, Sauron, I could see that being amplified by her ring. Um, Of course, again, you will say, why wasn't Gandalf's amplified by his ring? And we didn't see that. Well, Gandalf's ring is supposed to be secret, so uh, not shocking that we don't see it. But um, anyway, I'm just hoping he doesn't lean too hard on the ring because it will confuse things which are already confused in the films i think about that um yeah uh, well yeah
0: and aren't the aren't the rings supposed to be hidden from sauron
1: yeah um Though the fact that Galadriel had one of the Rings of Power always seemed to me like one of the worst kept secrets of 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 the Third Age. I mean, seriously, uh, <laughs> like I mean, who else is gonna have one? Uh, it's I mean, I mean, like you know, like, seriously, Elrond and Galadriel. It's like okay, you know, I mean, there's that there's that there's that moment you know in the end of the the uh, of the Rings of Power in the Third Age essay and the Silmarillion. Where it's like and by the end of the Third Age, it had become clear, uh, you know, that one. One was in Rivendell and one was in Lorien, you know, and it's like, it's true. Yes. Like if you look at the way that those two places, you know, become these kind of oases of, of, you know, the preservation of, 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 peace and the culture of the elder days, um, that, that's the power of the elven rings. And so, yeah, it becomes pretty obvious on observation, but I always want to add to that, uh, you know, like, you know, by the end of the third age, it had become clear, I would always wanted to add in parentheses if it wasn't pretty fricking obvious to begin with that Elrond and Galadriel would have two of the three elven rings. I mean, Ed seriously, rings. who else is on your short list if they don't make it? Um But, um, that's right. Yeah. What she says, what Galadriel says is, you know, he suspects, but he doesn't know. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it's true. To be consistent with that, she would have to, she, you know, she, she couldn't be openly wielding the ring in an obvious way. Um, though again, I said, I, I, it's hard for me to believe that he's going to be too worried about that. Yeah, yeah. Now see, Brian asks a good question. He says, which do I think would be worse, a sword wielding or a ring wielding collateral? And he'd have to say that the sword would be worse. You know, I'm not sure, Brian. I don't think I agree with that. Um, I know that Galadriel doesn't seem like a sword-wielding type, but at the same time, I feel like that's actually kind of a stereotype which doesn't actually seem to fit the elves of the First Age, for instance. Um, could I have seen Goadrill showing up with a sword in one of the battles of the, of the, of the first age? Yeah, I could see that. We don't have any evidence that she did. Um, but I could see that. Um, I don't think it would be in any way inconsistent with either her character in particular or the character of the elves of her kindred that we've, you know, that we see in the Silmarillion. So I don't think that it would be a violation of anything that Tolkien tells us about her or, you know, her her like, her kin. Um, whereas her coming in and wielding the ring of power, her, you know, Nenya, as an offensive weapon would be a violation of what Tolkien explicitly says about the nature and power of that ring. Um, so th- in that sense, that's why I think that her coming in, uh, her coming in wielding a sword would be less... Uh, would, would be less far from, uh, from Tolkien's depiction, I think, than her coming in, blowing things up with the ring. Um, yeah. 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 Um, uh, I, yeah.
0: I don't, yeah. I don't think she's gonna use the ring, personally.
1: I hope. I not. don't, I don't think she's gonna use it. Yeah, I hope not. Um, and, oh, actually, w wh- yeah. One quick thing. I forgot to address the first half of Ollie's question, which I wanted to which I wanted to do quickly. Sure. It wouldn't it won't take too long to do that. Um, he talks about uh uh Jackson's depiction of elves as super ninja warrior killing machines who mow down orcs like grass. Why are there still orcs left in the world if, uh, if uh, you know, elves are so much superior to them? Uh, and the answer that's true in Tolkien, though. I mean, that's explicitly an issue uh, in the Silmarillion. Remember uh, when the Noldor landed on Middle Earth? they found the orcs beginning just beginning to overrun Beleriand. like you know Beleriand's... the history of Beleriand was about to be over very very early and would have been had the Noldor not returned but the Noldor did return and when they return they just absolutely blow away the orc armies um with no i mean you know, like like they they just they they they, 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 mow, they mow them down like grass quite that's the that's so, very close actually to the metaphor that Tolkien uses to describe, uh, how they cannot stand, hmm. in particular before the Noldor. Now you're right that, uh, Peter Jackson sort of extends that not just to uh, you know to a a a difference between the calaquendi and the moraquendi which is how tolkien depicts it there in the silmarillion um but generalizes it to elves as a whole but still that that dynamic of how you know one elf is is general far more than a match for one orc is very true in tolkien's world um the reason why orcs uh, why there aren't, why there are still orcs left to trouble the people of Middle Earth, is that they breed like maggots, I and mean, that's always been true of orcs. Is that they are ever, they come in such hordes that they can overcome, even though you know the Noldor were enough to to kill, I don't even know how many goblins apiece, um, in the battles that we see in the Silmarillion, the orcs come in such numbers that they still manage to kill them. It still takes things like, uh, Balrogs or dragons or Morgoth himself, uh, or Sauron or somebody to defeat, you know, many of the lords of the Noldor. We don't see many of the, many of the, the, you know, the, the lords of the House of Finway taken down by orcs alone. Um, but still that it certainly does happen to many of them, you know, many of them are in fact successfully killed by orcs in battles because the orcs come, you know, uh, thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, as far as we know at a time. So, um, anyway, that, that, that in that way, I actually don't think, um, that Jackson's depiction is fundamentally different, um, from the one that we get, uh, from the one that we get in the books. And I thought actually just to, to, The, the way that he did the elves at the Battle of Helm's Deep, I know they weren't really there in the books, but, 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 but that I thought he depicted it pretty well. Um, that is to see that the elves are either, are obviously superior, like one-on-one, they were clearly superior to the orcs. Um, both in their individual power, you know, in their individual fighting ability and in their coordination working together. Um, the, you know, the elves, the, the, the little, you know battalion of elves that we got at helms deep looked really impressive but they still got overrun by the orcs and many of them including haldir were killed so i I, th- I actually thought that he he handled both ends of that uh jackson that is handled both ends of that um pretty well uh in e- e- even in the lord of the rings films so sorry, i just wanted to address that 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 earlier comment there
0: yeah yeah all right well, let's go on to the conundrum for that episode, and that is, will Legolas spot the Dol Guldur army and warn his father? So, and I'm going, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say that, uh, Legolas, you know, chases after Bolg, um... It's all the way down to Dol Guldur, which is right down the street, basically, as we know in in Peter Jackson's universe.
2: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh,
0: spots the spots the army on the move. Yep. And um, goes back and um, at least talks to his father about it. I don't know if that's going to be what motivates his father to to uh, move out his armies. He may wait for. Um, for the the dragon to die and uh, want to go after that gold, but I think Legolas will at least see it and um, tell his father about it. But you don't agree with me, Corey.
1: I don't. I don't think right? it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. I, I
0: I didn't convince you, huh? <laughs> no, I I
1: I don't know. I'm still not sure what's going to go on with Legolas. I don't. I I that my one um, my one piece of insecurity about my uh, uh, my disagreement on this is that um I'm not sure what I would suggest to the contrary. I don't really know what, um, uh, what they're going to be thinking with, for Legolas to do. I don't think he's going to make it all the way to Dol Guldor. I doubt he's going to come back and warn them. I kind of like that as a story, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, uh, but I'm not exactly sure what else I do think um, of Legolas. I think one, maybe one of the reasons why um, I think I, I think the reason I'm resistant um, to that idea is that um, I I like I, I think it it's rooted in the fact that I do really enjoy the way that Legolas has been placed between Toriel and the Elven King. And I think it's because I want to keep him there. Um, so I, um, that is to say, if he sees them himself, uh, the orcs approaching, in other words, it kind of short circuits the whole dilemma in which he's been placed. You know, he has to make a choice. Is he going to stick with his father? Is he going to, uh, to think the same way as his father? Or is he going to embrace, uh, or is he going to embrace Toriel as, you know, not literally. He wants to, but anyway, no. Is, is he going to embrace Toriel's thinking? Is he going <laughs> is, to, is he going to, is he going to go in that direction? And I feel like if he sees the orcs coming and just comes back and is like, ah, uh, dad, forget about all of this complicated stuff. Uh, there are some orcs coming. Then I feel like it short circuits that whole dilemma and I want to see him pushed to the brink of that dilemma to have to make a choice based on his own convictions. Um, you know, no dad, I'm with Toriel on this one. Uh, you totally, uh, you, are you're, you're totally wrong. In fact, Toriel and I are going to stage an intervention here. Uh, and, and, uh, I, that's, that's where I would rather see Legolas. But as I say, I don't have, um, um, I don't have a uh, uh a clear sense of Legolas's movements here like you know he's riding off after Bolg where does he go and how, you know what happens with him if he doesn't go to Dol Guldur I don't really that that's where that's where my uh, my theory kind of breaks down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we do know that he from that one picture we saw we do know that he is um it appears like he's talking to Bard after um the dragon has destroyed Lake town, so he know we know he's gonna be back in Lake Town at some point
1: yeah 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 i've uh opened the uh poll for our uh our live listeners to uh to ah, okay make themselves heard here to see if the what what they think about this we uh in our abortive attempt to do this before we uh uh I'd just be interested to see if uh, there's been any shift in opinion from the last time we uh, uh, we 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 asked our listeners this that's question. That's
0: right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Sandra asks if it wouldn't be too much like Aragorn and Helm's Deep in in in, in the Two Towers film. Well, that's sort of exactly the parallel that we were thinking of. Um, but you know, Sandra, I'm not sure if that's an argument for or against. I mean, that kind of parallel can work really well. I mean, that can be really interesting. I mean, obviously. Uh, it doesn't have to be exactly the same. In fact, and it wouldn't be exactly the same because the thing, it's not like when Aragorn saw them in, in the two towers and came back and reported, it's not like it was a surprise. You know, it's, it's not like he came back and is like, Oh my gosh, there's like a whole big army of orcs coming our way. And the, you know, and Théoden and everybody was like, what? Really? Oh my goodness. Who knew? Like they all knew that they were under attack. Like he just, had details to report to them. Like, what he had to report to them is, uh, this army is really much bigger than we thought it was, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but there was no surprise. They were already going, like, the whole reason they were going to Helm's Deep is that they knew this army was coming. So, um, so in that way, it wasn't parallel. And, uh, therefore, to have a moment that, to some extent, recapitulates that moment, but invests it with a very new kind of urgency, seems to me, um... Seems to me like that would certainly be different enough to uh, uh, remove some of the problem, anyway. Of of uh, or any hesitation, I think, on that score.
0: Actually, Chuck has an interesting thought. He says Legolas will see Smog, Smog attack Lake Town and return to save Tariel. Mm.
1: Hmm. Yeah. See, Chuck, that's. It, it, I think it all depends upon the particular consistency of Peter Jackson space time because there's a there's this kind of paradox, right? Where like distances are totally immaterial, so it's like when does Legos go into warp drive exactly? Like that's what it's like the the timing of his leap into Peter Jackson <laughs> hyperspace is really what's going to determine this. Because if the if 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 the hyperspace jump happens right away so that he warps to Dol Guldur as soon as he crosses the bridge, (laughs) then he'll be out of range and he won't see Lake town being attacked. But if he doesn't, yeah. Then he'll still be right. You know, he could still be within a within an easy, you know, hyperspace jump of Lake town again and see, yes. you know, see smog attacking. And then he certainly, w- he certainly he obviously would turn around and stop chasing the one orc he's chasing if he sees the dragon attacking the town. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious. So the only question is, is he going to still be in sight of yeah. the town when that happens? Um And again, given the pace that, you know, horses can travel in in Peter Jackson's world, he could be hundreds of miles away by then. But that's to me the big question. We don't really know. Well
0: hey, maybe a wormhole will open.
1: Nothing could be likelier. <laughs> I, I, I I think
0: Mixing Mixing our genres here. Yes, perhaps uh...
1: that's in the extended edition Ooh. uh of the maybe it's in another one of those things that's gonna be in the Desolation of smog extended edition. <laughs> you know, when we see when we see Azog actually going in through a wormhole uh to get to Dol Guldur in time when he's been summoned there at the beginning. Yeah. By the way, the poll results are Although really Although it should be
0: small going through the wormhole.
1: Oh, well, you're right. Uh, that would make much more sense. Uh, 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 makes perfect sense, actually. Um, uh, yeah, the, po- the poll results are,
0: are not the same as last time. No,
1: not at all. Have, uh, uh, last time when... Not uh, at all. Uh, yeah, when we opened this poll for the, the, the first time we talked about this conundrum, which was a, a recording which was destroyed, sadly, um, uh we had 81% say yes and 19% said no. Uh, now we have. That's right.
0: A, I, I guess I didn't state my case.
1: A very narrow margin. I didn't state my
0: case very well.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, yeah, we have, uh, uh, 5347. Uh, 53% say no, 47% say yes. So it's still, a, it's still, the no's still have it, but, by the slimmest of majorities uh, that's interesting, yeah. yeah, yeah I don't know uh, 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 yeah. I don't know if I waited until the poll was closed and then stated my no last time, so I was not trying to convince anybody I don't know, but um that is interesting um, uh, but anyway, we should move on to uh to hmm. episode three
0: yeah. Yes, and episode uh, episode three of the riddle was, where will the Hobbit there and back again begin? Uh, a was a historic flashback in any location. B was Erebor in the present. C, Lake Town in the present. D, Dol Guldor in the present. And E, none of the above, including a prologue or a frame narrative. And I went back and forth a bit on this one. Um, I'm kind of torn between uh, going back to Gandalf in Dol Guldur in the present moment. But the other thing I thought would be interesting is to have a flashback of um, Gandalf getting the map from Thryan.
1: Oh, man, that that would would be be my favorite flashback.
0: Those would be the two. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. But I thought that might be too much like Gandalf meeting Thorin at the beginning
1: of the movie, too. It would be. In fact, yeah, it would, wouldn't it be it great if, <clears throat> if that was sort of comically played on. Um, you know, in fact, it would be the, the most perfect thing would be if that he had met Thran at Brie several years earlier, you know, so then like the first film starts like, uh, you know, in Brie and then says like a few years earlier than the last time we started the film in brie like that would be really cool but no i agree the parallel would be would be uh, perhaps a little bit too close but that is certainly on my short list if that that is no that's not on my short list that is at the head of my short list that is the number one historical flashback i want to see um you know we've had the battle of old bazaar now so i have i have i have almost nothing left to ask for but i do want that uh i, I would love to see uh the flashback to N. so um but I I I agree with you. I don't think it's going to happen at the beginning of the film. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I I I, no. I would definitely like to see it.
0: Yeah, extended edition maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be cool. So you yeah. were you were thinking? Did you did you give your vote on this?
0: Yeah, I, I'm thinking. Uh... D. I'm thinking uh, we're going to go back to Gandalf at uh, Dol Goldor, because that's the that's one of the big side cliff the side cliffhanger that we yes. have to resolve. You know, how is Gandalf going to get free so he could come to um, to the Lonely Mountain?
1: Yeah, um, so it's. Um... I think they're going to do that at the at the beginning. I, yeah, well, so you very sensibly agree with me. I think that that's, uh, that, uh, that's, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, that <laughs> seems to me like the best beginning. Though I have to admit, Brian Biggs just made a suggestion which I kind of like. Um, Brian says, how about a young bard flashback to start it off? Um, it could be a transition if we start with him locked up. You know, I'm thinking about what we were just talking about, uh, in episode what was it five we just did of riddles in the dark on Friday um uh when we are talking about the fight uh in laketown um and you know that I think that it seems like the whole, the direction that they're going is really playing up the um you know the descendants of Giion thing um I think that it would be that i that is interesting brian I'm not sure that there's enough there to justify it, that is to say, I'm not sure that there's enough um I'm not sure that there's enough with uh um uh with Bard's youth because it's not really about Bard's youth again unlike Thorin right where all these things happened earlier in Thorin's own lifetime so that flashbacks to earlier in his life you know include things like the battle of Azanulbazar and the attack of Smaug and you know pretty much all of the relevant historical events were in his lifetime and seen by him with Bard it's about his family lineage and we've already had the Bard's family lineage flashback twice with Gary and shooting the, you know, the ballista, uh, excuse me, the windlass um, in, uh, uh, in, 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 in Dale. So I, I don't think that there's much else that's really new there um, that would really justify it, but it's kind of a cool idea. I mean, I certainly like the idea of setting up um, Bard a little bit more there. I think that that would work maybe, but um, yeah, yeah. Oh, and by the way, I want to, I want to welcome Carissa's son, Michael, who is sick and home from school today and joining us live here today. So I'm, I'm, I'm delighted, Michael, that you could join us today. Just a little <laughs> side note there. And I totally would, uh, I, and I, and I also applaud, Michael, your wisdom of being, uh, homesick from school on a day when we're doing a Riddles in the Dark broadcast. That is also when I would have tried to time my own illnesses, uh, when I was a child as well. So I, 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 I very much, uh, I very much approve. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
1: so, sorry, I just, okay. I, a little interruption well, there. But I wanted—I just wanted to mention that as an aside.
0: No, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. I—I, um, I, on the other hand, am a little glad my own son is not here, homesick.
1: <laughs> so. Yes, understood. And neither are mine. So yes, yeah. so we have both—both. Uh, 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 yes, your your son <laughs> and my sons are. Happily at school and that certainly makes the broadcast easier for us i know uh but uh yes no serena i am not encouraged. serena is, is accusing me of 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 encouraging children to play hooky from school and i absolutely uh, abs- i i suggested nothing of the kind serena i i i could not possibly condone such things um though my own record as a child uh, perhaps does not give me a very firm moral foundation to stand upon in discouraging people from staying home from school uh nevertheless no and absolutely not i am sure the illness is completely genuine and it is merely timed uh by chance <laughs> or fate uh and that is all i was merely praising him on his good Thank fortune you, Colin. absolutely yeah no it is uh, not in any way uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a providential illness. That's exactly it, Serena. That's exactly it. Um, we've, we had several uh really interesting comments on this riddle, though.
0: Yeah. Uh, the first comment, uh, from Jordan Sutherland. Uh, just my two cents. Maybe the movie will open with a flashback to Smaug meeting with a messenger from Sauron in the mountain. After all, we know from movie two that Smaug knows about a greater evil spreading in the world. Sauron sends a messenger to Smaug in an attempt to win his allegiance. The messenger warns Smaug that he might get a visit from the dwarves intent on reclaiming their kingdom. He then tells Smaug that if that happens, to make sure he delivers some serious vengeance on the dwarves and any allies they may have. We then cut immediately to a shot of Smaug flying towards Lake Town with hate in his eyes.
1: This is a fascinating idea. Um, it's a fascinating idea. It certainly is the kind of flashback that that we hadn't really considered. Um, it, I mean, there are some elements of it. I mean, certainly, I don't think that Smaug would need to be told uh, to destroy any dwarves that he found sneaking into the Lonely Mountain. Um, but remember, there's the, the thing that keeps nagging at me, though, uh, you know, when thinking about Jordan's comment there, is that, again, that captive goblin that Thranduil decapitates, and the way in which the suggestion of how Sauron is focused on Thorin... Um, You know, and that's one thing that happened, which has not been fully explained. I don't know if it will be fully explained. I don't know if it will be fully explained in the four and a half hours of additional material we expect confidently to receive in the extended edition of The Desolation of Smaug. But it's, um, in film one, Azog's pursuit of Thorin seemed completely personal. Um, you know, we had no reason to think that Azog and his posse were out after Thorin, apart from the fact that Azog had very obviously sworn personal vengeance against Thorin. That seemed a perfectly adequate explanation. The Even the reference made to Azog by uh, the Great Goblin seemed to support that. And yet... When that orc is captured and says to Thranduil, but, you know, it explains to Thranduil why they're they not fully explains, but you know, says they're they've come after you know after Thorin, they're trying to exterminate them. There's obviously Thorin is on Sauron's radar screen. That's very clear. I mean, the film seemed to make that very clear. I don't know exactly why. Um, you know, is is this? Are they going some kind of prophecy angle? Does Sauron have some kind of sense that, uh, you know, it, it, something momentous is going to be happening with Thorin and his company that, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what exactly um, it would be. Uh, the, yeah, I just, that, that's something that I don't feel like I've got a really good grasp on. Therefore, um, if we were to get any kind of indirect conversation through a messenger between Sauron and Smaug here, um, it, it, I, I could imagine them, you know, Sauron warning Smaug that, uh, uh, that Thorin was probably coming uh, and perhaps preparing him in some way or um, seeking some assurance from him or something like that. Um, but, but I don't know. I, like I said, I there's, there's, I, I do find this an interesting idea. Um, but I'm not really sure, I'm not really sure the direction it would go. I'm not really sure how it would work. Daniel, uh, Daniel Helen yeah. says that he still thinks that Smaug's dream is going to make an appearance. Um, yeah. The flashback to Smaug's dream. I still love, love, love that idea. That would be, if I could choose my, 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 I mean, I, I already said that the flashback to Thrand is the historical flashback I'm most hoping for. And it is, but if I could choose what would be my favorite, not what I think would make the best from a film standpoint, but what, what, what would be my absolute favorite way to open the film, Daniel, it would totally be that it would totally be. Smaug's dream. Um, That would be so great. Um, Hard to arrange, again, unless as we we talked about in the episode, Smaug is falling asleep in the air, but um, (laughs) yeah, yeah.
0: That would be great. I would love to see that, but I doubt it. But on the other hand, we saw Bolg again, so it could happen.
1: Yeah. It could happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, We'll see. Um, But um, Th- All right. th- the difficulty here is that we do have clear evidence within the second film that there has indeed been some level of communication, um, at the very least some level. I think it's, it's, is proven that there is awareness, um, between Smaug and, and the necromancer. Smaug is obviously aware of the presence and identity of Sauron. um, and there is the implication, I think, that they have communicated. So that seems to have happened. Um, what was said? Well, I don't know for sure. Do you sure. think that's
0: yeah? Do you think that's necessarily true, or do you think that Smaug maybe has some spies? Uh, well, maybe some birds who? or animals or something.
1: I mean, he he has crows, I guess. Um, but I I don't know. I I I think. I think he's aware. Um, and I suspect that they have communicated. Um, so that is to say, I agree with Jordan in the sense that I think that there, a scene like that must have happened. I would think. Um, I would think that Smaug has communicated, that Smaug and Sauron have communicated, and I would think that they would have communicated by messenger. That seems the most likely way, Sauron to send a messenger mm-hmm. to Smaug. Um, based on what Smaug said in film two, I would, I would anticipate that he has in fact received a messenger from Sauron, but what the messenger exactly said, what precisely the nature of their relationship is, um, you know, what are the terms, if any of their partnership, what are the instructions, if any given to, to Smaug by the necromancer of those things? I am uncertain. Um, and so, therefore, I don't know how exactly I'd go about recreating that, 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 that conversation. But it does seem to me that it happened. Um,
0: yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and I guess the question is, you know, how much of a free agent is Smaug? He, he certainly seems like he is, and maybe he just kind of delights in the general mayhem. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, the dragons were created by Morgoth. And Sauron was a servant of Morgoth, so there's that link there. Yeah, um, but it's it's not clear. Maybe it'll be made clear.
1: Yeah, I, that's I, I kind of think it almost has to be, um, because that was so tantalizing, you know, in the conversation uh, with Bilbo, um, the reference that he makes not only to the fact of the existence and, and presence of Sauron, but Uh, His, that is Smaug's, apparent awareness of the presence of the ring. I mean, I feel like those things are too tantalizing not to follow up on somehow. And since it seems we're not going to have much more substantive dialogue with Smaug uh, prior to his death, it would have to be, if we learned more about it, we would have to learn more about it in a flashback. I would think. Yes,
0: or it could be that Smaug is just... sort of like the Nazgul just perceptive Mm -hmm. of the presence of something like that, whether it's the ring or just some, you know, he, he probably doesn't know it's the the one ring, but he may sense
1: something. True. It's, it it is quite possible. Um, you know, I, I I don't want to read too much into his, you know, his, um, uh, his, you know, use of the word precious in, in that way. you know, I, I think it'd be easy to read too much into that, um, though he does seem to so see there. I mean, the way that he seems to interfere with Bilbo's will, I think it's an important thing. Um, some people seem to have taken that moment in the second film to believe that, S- that Smaug has some kind of authority over the ring, almost as if it's like forcing the ring to reveal itself in, you know, when Bilbo takes off the ring. Um But clearly the the power that Smaug has is over Bilbo's will, right? He induces Bilbo to take the ring off. Yes. Um, and I don't even necessarily think that that is evidence that Smaug knew that Bilbo was wearing the ring of power, which was making him invisible, and thus was exerting his will to try to get Bilbo to take it off. Rather, remember in the book, Bilbo... Uh, during his conversation with Smaug is gripped by the desire to run out and reveal himself to Smaug um he's he so he feels precisely that temptation in the book to take the ring off and to run out and reveal himself to smaug and he feels that temptation not only when smaug in the book clearly has no idea of the presence of the ring of power but when in fact the ring of power wasn't even the ring of power when it was just the invisibility ring uh that bilbo had in Sorry. 1937 uh it it's it still um he still he still did the same thing so that the, there need not be that scene need not suggest any direct kind of connection between Smaug and the Ring of Power. Um, it could be I don't know, but it seems to press coincidence also. So I'm not really sure. Um, but um, but yeah, as as Pete points out, Smaug would yeah. have no way of knowing that Gollum called the Ring my precious. Um, yes, certainly you could argue that. Once Gollum got out into the world and had been captured by Sauron and stuff, that piece of vocabulary would be circulating. Remember, Merry and Pippin play on that um, when they imitate Gollum to Grishnak the orc. Um, counting on the fact that Grishnok will have known enough about Gollum and Gollum's peculiar speech patterns in order to recognize that as a very indirect reference to the Ring of Power. I mean, you think about the implications of that, right? So that basically the, um, uh, the Gollum's, you know, Gollum's, as I say, Gollum's speech patterns, um, are now known. You know, that's, that's, that that's now a sort of a, a common currency, apparently, uh, among any of the enemy who's in the know. Um, but as Pete points out, that would obviously not be the case when Gollum has still, as far as we know, not ever even emerged from the Misty Mountains. Um, so it would be literally impossible that Smaug would associate the word precious with the ring in that particular way. Though, of course, even just using it in its literal way that is not thinking of Gollum other than as a, as a sort of an accident, um, a piece of dramatic irony that we perceive, but Smaug would not, um, he still does seem to be referring to a particular precious thing that Bilbo has as if he's aware of that in some sense, even if he doesn't know precisely what it is. Um, Anyway, so. It's all very tantalizing. That scene in the second film was extremely tantalizing. Yes, it is. Uh, and it may perhaps just be my own desire to learn more about it that is leading me to predict that we will learn more, but I don't know.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, let's go on to the uh, the next comment from Philip Menzies. He says, I agree that the prologue has to set up the film in some way, whether it be bringing us back to where the last film got to, giving us some information that we will need, or bringing back to mind a particular theme. As for what will be the beginning of movie three, one question that has been asked over and over again is what is the connection between Dol Guldur and the dragon? Um... Seeing as this was not answered in Movie 2 and Smog will not be in Movie 3 for very long, time is running out for this information to be given to the audience. Well, that's definitely true. Yes. Um, The prologue will be the best time to have some kind of flashback to Smog secure in his stash of gold, maybe include his dream of the warrior as well, and having some kind of communication with the necromancer, because once the dragon is dead, there will be great drama and having the necromancer know immediately. Remember in The Fellowship of the Ring <clears throat> when Frodo put the ring on for the first time in Brie? The film cuts to the Nazgul reacting to this. They know and we know they are coming. This is also an effective way of having a link between the two stories and the action going back to Gandalf. That is the sort of thing that Peter Jackson does well, and he did it particularly well in The Two Towers. Without this link, the movie runs the risk of the two storylines being totally disconnected and the story of the dragon paling to insignificance beside the other story of Sauron's. Mm, mm. Um, And then he adds, There is also a strong musical link between Smaug and the Ring and the forces of evil. This is intentional from Howard Shore, and he does talk about the musical themes of evil linking together in the score for The Desolation of Smaug. I think the musical link has to indicate a much deeper link between Smaug and Sauron. I'm just waiting to see it played out on screen.
1: Interesting. So yeah, that's that, that's the other possibility of some actual communing between the two of them, some some kind of spiritual and mental connection. No need to send an orc messenger uh, to the lonely mountain from Sauron that they can say And it also uh, it also seems to set. You know, I, I I I would I would love to see the exchange. You know, Smaug is shot by the black arrow and plummets into the lake, and then we cut to Dol Guldur. And there's like, uh, Azog or, 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 or some other orc there with the necromancer or the, or the, 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 witch king or somebody. Uh, and Sauron like pauses, you know, in the middle of doing something. Like he's like, I don't know, torturing somebody for fun or something. And then, and then stops for a second and is like, what's wrong, master? And he's like, I just felt a great disturbance in the force. Uh, you know, as of, uh, 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 Something large, scaly, and evil <laughs> that was suddenly silenced. Um, I, you know, I, I could totally, <laughs> I could totally see that. I think that, I <laughs> think that would work really well. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the kind of, the difficult thing, <clears throat> I think, it's one thing. I, I think that the, the instance, um, that, that Philip cites is really interesting. That is the, that moment when we do, we, when we got that cut to the Nazgul, um, when Frodo put on the ring and the fellowship of the ring, um, that was interesting. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that, that is an interesting connection. But see, notice the way that that works is by implication. You know, that is, it doesn't spell it out explicitly. Um, and I think if you do try to spell it out, if you do try to show, if you do try to show how it works, um, it's one thing to say vaguely, Sauron is aware of Smaug, and Smaug is aware of Sauron. It's another thing to imagine, like, a detailed telepathic conversation between the two of them, you know? Um, I feel like that kind of goes too far. Um, It's hard for me to imagine that that's possible. The evidence doesn't even seem to suggest, by the way, that, that, like, Glaurung and Morgoth communicated telepathically across the continent. Um, Maybe they did. But I don't think so. I think Glaurung was acting as a free agent. Um, uh, so I'd be a little surprised. Yeah. Um, but...
0: Maybe it's not so much a direct link like that, but maybe just more a, a sense, a spidey sense or
1: right. something. Right. Yeah, you know? exactly. No, but I I do kind of love that the idea of Sauron, of Sauron, like, just sensing, you know, when Smaug dies and... and being kind of miffed about it that that would be uh that would be fun, I would enjoy that, yeah, don't yeah. know how 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 plausible it really is, but um well let's let's uh let's put with our conundrum is on this subject because we had you know we had uh, you know, there's a couple of very provocative comments uh about uh um smog and sauron here in conjunction with the with with the opening, so we wanted to ask, will we see? A direct connection between Sauron and Smaug in movie three. Um, and I would, I would, I would sort of expand this to say, like, will we get that explained? Will we see? If we were to get, um, you know, the, the first suggestion, uh, you know, Jordan's suggestion of the, of the flashback to the messenger of Sauron, um, you know, conveying orders or, or, or whatever to Smaug, um, I would count that as yes. You know, are we gonna see, are, are we gonna see that in operation? You know the the connection between Smaug and and and, and Sauron. Are we going to see that um, in in action in the third film? Are we going to see any direct evidence of it? Yes. Not just implications, not just direct. deductions that were you know led to draw, but 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 actual on screen evidence. Yes,
0: yeah, some kind of direct communication between the two of them.
1: Yeah, you know. One of the Nazgul calling out to Sauron from the back room. Smaug's not answering the phone, sire. What do we do? Um, You know. (laughs) They could work in the not-at-home line. Right. Yeah.
0: That's right. So maybe instead of the moth that calls the eagles, maybe Sauron uses like a hornet or something. Oh, yeah. That'd be awesome,
1: actually. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Smaug. Leading to a climactic battle between moth and hornet uh, there at, at the end. Yeah, that would be.
0: Exactly. Because yeah, obviously has, the fastest exactly. and most efficient way to yeah. send
1: messages is through insects. That's, that's it's been demonstrated that it is they can travel incredibly quickly and surely.
0: Hundreds and hundreds of miles, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ooh, Pete, Pete suggests one of the black butterflies from Mirkwood. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea.
0: Ah, okay.
1: <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. So I said yes on this.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think, Corey? I
1: I think yes. The reason I think yes is that I felt that Smaug's words to Bilbo, they went, fur- they went further than I expected. Um, I mean, that was definitely one of the... Uh, to use, uh, to use Bilbo's phrase uh, from Chapter 1 of Book 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring, um, that was a real eye-opener for me um, in the Desolation of Smaug film. Um, I had been expecting the connection between Sauron and Smaug to remain implicit, but not explicit, or maybe to be commented on after the fact. I was kind of expecting, maybe we'll get Gandalf talking... After the Battle of Five Armies, you know, maybe when, as he and Bilbo were riding home, um, Gandalf is going to be explaining to him, or we'll get a scene in Rivendell on the way back or something, um, you know, where Bilbo will get to sit at the big, at the big, you know, at the at grown ups table and take part in the conversation. Uh, and we'll hear, you know, Gandalf explaining about how there was a connection between Smaug and Sauron all along. That seemed to me like the most that we could really expect. So when Smaug starts referring to, I mean, what he actually revealed to Bilbo was a great deal more than I expected. Um, and it seemed to me to suggest pretty clearly that there has been communication between them. There has been some kind of direct uh, involvement. Um, and I just have a hard time imagining they're going to give Smaug lines like that and never follow it up. Um, even in the extended edition. So it's possible that we won't see it in the theatrical release of movie three. There's there's my, like, cop-out hedging of my bets there. Um, But it's just hard for me to imagine that they would not follow that line, that they would have those references just get dropped in isolation and never come back to them. It sounded like a setup. So, therefore, I would predict yes. Yes. I would say yes to this. I think we are going to see it somewhere. Is it going to be a flashback? Yeah. Is it going to be a flashback at the beginning? You know, I have to say, the more I think about it, the more likely that seems. Because if you're going to get a flashback, uh, it should be before Smaug's death, right? I mean, it'd be a little bit of a non sequitur after Smaug is dead and at the bottom of the lake <laughs> to be like, oh, yeah. um, and by the way, now a flashback to when Smaug was still alive, Um I mean maybe there would be a context in which that would make sense as we're discovering more about the necromancer and about uh you know with leading up to the battle of five armies but it still seems pretty strained it seems like if that flashback is going to happen it's got to be while smaug is alive right probably which means the beginning of the film sounds like an awfully good opportunity for that <clears throat> if you want to do that but That's right you know but I don't know I yeah. I I I I I'm, I'm still not convinced it it doesn't lead me to doubt my answer to the riddle i still think d i still think that we're going to start in dol and we're not going to start with this flashback um but uh uh but
0: well yeah. we we could possibly see evidence of it after smaug is dead by the way saron or one of his minions um react to the death of Smaug.
1: <laughs> yeah serena is just suggesting oh, I just that i just sent this i just
0: idea. sent the hornet out
1: yeah exactly <laughs> serena says the necromancer can have that flashback <laughs> when he hears that Smaug is dead he could be thinking back over their friendship <laughs> ah the good old days where the dragon and i planned the madness Sorry. and mayhem together are gone forever yeah you see you know we see uh sauron staring moodily out the window into the, you know, into the horizon with a little tear glistening on his cheek, like, ah, oh, Smaug. Maybe
0: a, a tear from his great Absolutely. eye. Absolutely,
1: yeah, from the great eye, a this flaming tear eye. falling from the, from the fiery eyeball and being like, <laughs> oh, I barely knew ye, Smaug. Oh, I think back to the the days, that, the <laughs> memories that we had and the the, <laughs> the the you know, the destruction that we could have wrought together. Oh dear. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. Um uh, see you know, well, it would be so easy. It, so it easy like the to make a parody of this so of this whole thing. Yeah. It, it just really suggests yes. itself in so many different ways. <laughs> yeah that would be that would be great maybe we could even see some like uh you know uh a, a little memory montage of uh because you know, they could have known each other back in the old days you know we don't know how old exactly uh uh Smaug is he doesn't go back to the third age or he does not That's go right. back to the first age it doesn't seem
0: maybe Smaug
1: yeah, exactly. You know, we could have uh,
0: little baby Smaug frolicking with Sauron.
1: Exactly, the day that Sauron came along and discovered baby Smaug, and and uh, you know, uh, you know, he holds out his hand. Oh, I know they Smaug can be both. T- tries to eat it. Can and...
0: Sar- Sauron t- takes his vampire bat
1: form, and they fly. Around. <laughs> and they fly together. Yes, you know, exactly. Smaug is a baby oh. dragon. Oh, it's so touching! It's so that'll, touching. That'll be the Disney version. Yes, exactly. They they would they, they they could have a musical number together. It would be awesome. It really would. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I I kind of doubt the film is going to go in this. Serena,
0: Serena says she's she's sorry she started this. <laughs> um.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um but yeah i i don't know so i i really don't know this is something i i'm just really puzzled by it like i said it's one of the reasons why i was so surprised when they went there in the second film because i don't see how they're going to close that loop i don't see how that's going to work um but it seems like it has to i mean they've gone too far i think to just turn back but um but yeah i, I don't know I'll be, i will i will i'll definitely be very interested to see it well we should probably go i've kept people longer uh than uh, oh. that I expected. We oh we should uh share the results of the poll uh by and large. Most people agree with us. There's actually a little bit less than I thought. Fully almost thirty percent uh think that we will not see a direct connection between Sauron and smug Those seventy percent, seventy one percent said yes. So um uh it'll be interesting to see if uh uh you know, those, uh, percentages play out with the, the listenership as a whole. But, um, uh, but yeah, interesting. Well, I get, thank you everybody for joining us. Thank you for, uh, sticking with us, uh, through a long, uh, episode today. Uh, and, uh, we will have, uh, uh, now in the recording, the interview, uh, between me and Robin Reed. So, uh, I, you know, stay tuned for that. Um, so yes, if, if if you're listening uh, to the recording, you know, now that Laura and I are coming to the end, don't go away. There's still more, as you'll see. So uh, but uh, for those of you who are here with us live, I will say uh, uh, thanks very much. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I will say to you, thanks for listening and Godspeed. Though that's not the official official thanks for listening and Godspeed, because this is in the end of the real episode, of course, when we do the recording. But But anyway, thanks, everybody, okay. for joining us. Today I'm joined by Dr. Robin Ann Reed, Professor of Literature and Languages at Texas A&M University Commerce. Professor Reed is a very active Tolkien scholar who is not a medievalist, like so many Tolkien people, but rather she focuses on 20th century cultural studies. As a student not only of the ways in which Tolkien's work was influenced by his culture, but the ways in which Tolkien's writings have influenced many other cultures, she's been a keen observer of Peter Jackson's films, so I was interested to hear what she had to say about the recent Hobbit films. In addition, in the summer 2014 semester, Dr. Reed is teaching a class on the Lord of the Rings at Mythgard, approaching the books from a cultural studies and audience response perspective. I wanted to give her the chance to explain a little bit more about what that means. But first, I asked her to tell us about the article she is currently writing about Peter Jackson's Torio.
3: So I've actually started gathering, um, and I'm working, it's not a reception in the sense of surveying people, right? but it's looking at publish reviews, uh, professional, commercial, fan forums, all that sort of stuff, looking at the very complicated, controversial nature of her among fandom and critics. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I've been reading a bunch of reviews. Well, I taught The Hobbit second film over the winter mini, so that my students and I started talking about that, of course, early on. And so, yeah, I've been thinking a lot because it was a very clear breakdown in the class with a lot of the young male students who were the really major fans of the book, which they read as children, being just horrified <laughs> at the, um, at the horrible intrusion and, <laughs> and claiming that it took up so much time. Right. And it was like, it really doesn't take up that much time. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I can hardly wait to get my hands on the, the DVD so I can time the actual, thing but it's it's not really that much time so uh, but some of the women in class of course were, were pushing back against that especially a a woman student who'd been in the military and really liked toriel and was resisting this idea that she was only there for romance and so um you know, reading through all the sites we were looking at, I started thinking, yeah, I've got to do a, a paper analyzing
1: this. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I, I don't, you know, my own reaction to Torio, one of the things that I was really impressed by, and it didn't strike me at first, but in retrospect, especially listening to many people who are kind of uh, very resistant to Torio and especially who were saying, mm-hmm. oh, you know, this is obviously just fluff put in there to, you know, uh, to include an attractive woman on the cast and everything. Um, it's just eye wow. candy. And listening to people, to say that really made me realize the extent to which she's not deployed as eye candy i mm-hmm. mean the the, the way mm-hmm. in which it seemed that they've even i would even go so far as to say they've gone out of their way in costuming and everything to make her not a sexually provocative character i mean oh i agree. and that and, and i was frankly surprised uh, by that and i feel like they've not gotten nearly enough credit uh, no, <laughs> from I'm people for out. that
3: nor does the fact that it was, you know, Philip Boyens and Fran Walsh, who were really overall pushing for more female characters in the work, because of the auteur theory, it always gets reduced to Peter Jackson does this. Well, no, Fran Walsh and Philip Boyens do a lot. Right. And Evangeline Lilly has given interviews in which she said she didn't want a threesome romance. And yes, I agree. With the costuming, and in fact, one of the reviews I'm I'm looking at <clears throat> has a poster. In, and this is the title of the review, that um, Toriel doesn't do butt shots. Right. And, and, in fact, she's facing on to the audience with her, her bow and arrow, and Legolas has the butt <laughs> shot, you know, where they're standing, looking over their shoulders. So it's it's been completely crafted right. to avoid the, the stereotypical bimbo um, eye candy thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and more than that, she talks, she speaks to the moral center of the film in the sense of, when did we let evil you know make us retreat? Why are we not acting, which is the right thing to do
1: right so. right yes, I mean no, it was clear in that way that uh, and again it was it was it was another thing that I found a little bit puzzling myself in thinking you know i I'm sitting here sort of thinking in terms of what you were talking about before about the um the responses you know that I've read uh, to people and again, I just one of the other things that really puzzled me was people who were saying that that her edition was was simply fluff you know that there was nothing substantive to it and and because and, as you say she was at the center of a, a, clearly a very substantive uh a sort of moral plot development in the story you know she was made the mouthpiece of one of the of of, of clearly a very important um Element uh, in in the overall development of that story, and one which, anticipating, you know, thinking about what's coming as we move towards the Battle of Five Armies, something that I can only imagine is going to loom far more important.
3: Mm-hmm. And yeah, she's now in Lake Town with some of the dwarves, and, and Philip Boyens gave an interview about why they wanted a group in Lake Town to have them there, seeing the the dragon and the attack. Right. So she's in Lake Town with the dwarves, and will be where. Speculating, you know, how they will end up at the Battle of the Five Armies, and not a whole lot of it. it's interesting. I mean, this is what your your group is doing, but yeah, because I think I'm I'm split whether or not she ends up dead along with Philly and Keeley.
1: Oh yes, that's
3: getting Legolas the you know aunt. Right. Or whether she survives, Uh but I, I am I am going out on a limb with everybody and saying one thing I'm pretty sure of: she ends up with Keeley's runestone.
1: Uh huh. Uh huh.
3: Because there's no way that a filmmaker is going to spend that amount of time on a rock right unless it becomes important later on, so somehow that's that's going to happen whether or not she survives past that uh, well I'm hoping she does of course uh, but I can see it go either way in terms of the the overall plot in the end yes
1: i'm i'm i, I, I i've been of the opinion uh pretty much all the way through that I think she's uh not destined to survive i I'd, I'd be very surprised uh if she lives mm-hmm. i i I have been expecting her all along to die in the Battle of Five Armies, and in some sense yeah. when the sort of early rumors of you know uh relationship with Kiwi were confirmed in the second film, that sort of solidified my opinion that she was gonna die uh, uh but yeah uh, i mean i, I it's One of my hopes about it is that it's not going to be, I mean, you know, again, the initial concept when we started talking about this like two years ago, you know, we were thinking, well, this is going to be, you know, as you said, leading to angst from Legolas and possibly, you know, Um, uh, serving in some way to, 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 to fuel the obvious antipathy against dwarves with which he begins the Fellowship of the Ring film.
3: But of course, he already has the antipathy towards right. in the
1: Exactly, Republic. exactly. There's, there's, there's no need for it to grow. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's quite plain already. Um, and I was relieved. Um, I, I, I had a moment of, uh, of, 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 significant um, concern. That is concerned that they were going to go in a really lame and and, and predictable direction um, during at. One of the trailers, um, that is the first of the, of the Desolation of Smaug trailers that revealed, um, Thranduil talking about, uh, how, you know, she's not to give Legolas any hope. And, uh, right. and, and I was, I, w- I was, I was, I was disappointed. Cause again, one of the questions we've been talking about is, are, are we just going to be getting basically, we're, we're going to develop a new female character and her only point is going to be to be Legolas's girlfriend. And how lame is that going to be? <laughs> if that's all that happens, it's so, it's so predictable. And so Pat,
3: well, and I would agree if, if that's all that happens, right. but again, there's an interesting backstory and granted interviews are part of marketing today, right, right. But still Evangeline Lilly is on record as saying that she did not, want the romance a threesome romance going in because she did that on lost right um, you know to the nth degree and that when they were filming there was not that much written in about a, a romance between her and keely there's a little bit with with her and legolas but that the um studio executives wanted mm. it And there are, I mean, Jackson has, and the others have talked about on special features before, things they had to put in the film because studio executives wanted it. Some things they wouldn't do, you know, but it's always that collaborative issue of film and quest for what is there. So how much of, you know, is being put in there is due to some clever cutting and and some other things, uh, as opposed to the people who created the original idea to bring her in and how they wanted to see her work. Uh, it, it's not just a threesome romance. I right. mean, her fighting skills are as great as Legolas'. She is, um, again, a captain of the guard. She is speaking against Thranduil's desire to isolate himself until he thinks he can get his hands on those pretty sparkly white jewels. <laughs> so she's serving a lot of narrative function. And the romance, which at least I'm willing to say, okay, it's, it's possible it was imposed from the executives, uh, the, the people in control of the money and the marketing to, to push that. So it's interesting to wade through and see what's happening. Um, another thing, and, and this is what I'm interested in, I, I won't be actually talking about the film as a text. My text is the audience receptions. After a certain point, and... When the first rumors went out about a female elf appearing in The Hobbit in 2010, Mm -hmm. before they even had the same name or any information about the plot, a lot of fans were very, very upset, uh, fearing quite rightly how it might be handled. Mm -hmm. But even after the film came out and and many of the responses, there was a certain amount of calling out of what many of us are seeing as misogyny. Mm -hmm in some of the responses to Toriel. I mean, you can dislike Toriel or dislike the changes that Tolkien has made with, or sorry, Peter Jackson has made in Tolkien's work without being a misogynist uh, about it. But some of the Toriel hate. So a number of the blog posts I have uh, are very much, I'm speaking out against Toriel hate and sort of arguing against that commentary uh, and since so a huge part of this fandom is is women, we're seeing this within an, a, a largely female fandom that, um, again, some people who are real fans of Legolas are, are going to react in a certain way right. to a possible romance with a female character. And, and of course, in fandom, the, the claim is always that this character is a Mary Sue. I don't know if you know that term.
1: I don't, actually.
3: Okay. Um The term Mary Sue was coined in the fan fiction fandom, and it has an actual origin in the Star Trek fandom. This is where a fan fiction writer, and in fan fiction, the idea is is you work with the characters and the setting that are in the original text. Mm -hmm. And when you bring in an original character, that is sort of going against... The idea of, of what fan fiction is. So in this case, it was a Star Trek story on the Bridge of the Enterprise where the 19 year old Perky Ensign, Mary Sue, something (laughs) rather bopped into the story and everybody fell in love with her. And it's a self insert character that is widely perceived as too perfect for words and whose only function is that everybody falls in love with her. Now, I teach creative writing, and I've taught it for 25 years, and I can say most people's earliest writing involves a great deal of derivative material and self-inserts. Yeah. So that this is, you can argue that many young fan fiction writers or beginning fan fiction writers are going to not only be doing the derivative stuff in the sense of working with the, the canon text, but also writing in themselves in one way or another. Over the decades since Trek, uh, the Mary Sue has become such a major flashpoint among, again, the largely female fan fiction writing fandom that many of us see it as going too far, mm-hmm. and that too much criticism and hatred is aimed at character or any original female character is perceived to be a Mary Sue. Right. So you can see the argument, especially thinking of film as a derivative work based on Tolkien's work, introducing an original female character, there was the danger all along of making her into a Mary Sue.
1: Right, right.
3: One of the characteristics of a Mary Sue is she's so idealistic and perfect and everybody loves her. As some of the commenters I'm reading say, well, okay, if we're talking Mary Sue, someone who's not in the original Text and someone who's absolutely perfect and everyone adores them. How come that's not Legolas? Why was there not the same? Critique of Legolas obviously you could say well he was you know written into the story at later dates, but There's a good argument as to why uh, Legolas makes it into this this film because of his popularity in the fandom so that there can be elements of sexism in commentary on female characters within both fan fiction and also within this
1: film. There's such an obvious uh, sort of danger of, of that mm-hmm. um, with The Hobbit in particular, right? Because, I mean, you, you already have the uh, sort of potentially loaded from a gender perspective issue of the, you know, the all-male cast of the book of The Hobbit, right? So that, you know, one way or another... You know, both both from the point of view of the adaptation of the story. You know, the question: you know, Are you going to add another mm-hmm. character? And you know, to, to add in new characters. And if you do, are you going to add female characters? Um, because of the fact that the Hobbit story is completely mm-hmm. male, it puts more pressure. It, it really draws more attention to. The, I mean, it makes the Toriel figure as a woman stand out, yes. Um and and it also therefore tends to put um the reactions you know as you were talking about in a potentially awkward place because a lot of the people who uh you know would just tend to object to anything that is different uh you know anything that's a deviation from the text it's it's, it's awkward. Or to say it a different way, it's easy for that to turn around and begin to take a, 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 something which it will at the very least sound, if not even actually have, that kind of a misogynistic edge that you were talking about. I mean, or, or, or if you're really going to stand up and say, there should be no women in this film, I object mm-hmm. to women. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's hard mm-hmm. because of the way that, uh, that the lines have been drawn by the fact that there, that there are no women in the, in the original story. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, no female, no named female characters that we know of. Some of us were saying in the film, a lot of us would have liked to see more women serving among the elf, elven guards. I mean, Mm -hmm. once you imply that Toriel can be captain of the guard, that implies there are other women serving. What if they had, you know, other women in there, uh, working? And so just to take some of that pressure off, or they wouldn't have to be named characters, but there's actually, um, you know, various, uh, feminist, uh, commentary on the low number of female characters in film generally. And the Gina Davis Institute has done some interesting studies, among other things, saying, why don't you look to filmmakers, why don't you look at your background characters and make those more diverse, you know, within the context of the universe? Mm-hmm. So I'd say that's actually something that the Lake Town sequences, especially in the confrontation at the end between Thorne and Bard and you know, in front of the master of Lake Town. If you look at the pan over the crowd of Lake Town people who are, who are standing around, that is an absolutely brilliant case where there are a whole lot of female characters of various ages yes. and a whole lot of different ethnic groups represented, which makes perfect sense for Lake Town if it was a major trading center in the area in the past, any major trading center will have populations from all over who end up, end up there and have you know, stayed there. Right. So if you actually look at those background characters, there are women all over the place. And
2: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that,
3: I think, is an example that says the filmmakers were thinking more than just, oh, we need a Mary Sue romance, I can't character. They took pains right. with that uh, scene, to integrate women into Middle Earth in a way that was amazing. And it only right. lasted a little while, but it still, it made that statement for me.
1: Yeah, no, I think that that's a, I think that's a really great point. Um, well, I know that, uh, you know, we've been talking about, uh, audience response and the, the, you know, the work that you've been doing here, uh, with with, Regard to the Peter Jackson films, I'd like to uh, to move to talking a little bit about the course that you're teaching at Mythgard this summer. As I know, it's 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 connected with that. I know that a lot of people uh, have you know we've been we've been telling people about your course coming up, and I know they'd they'd love to hear a little bit more from you about exactly what it means and you know the, the 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 kind of thing that you're doing, studying the Lord of the Rings. From this different perspective, I know this is a, this is sort of an approach to the book that's not really familiar to 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 lots of fans. I, I, I'm sure they'd love to hear you describe it, mm-hmm. d- describe it a little bit. Okay, more.
3: Okay, well, uh, I have to start out as I almost always do in such contexts by saying I'm not a medievalist. And <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I first read Lord of the Rings when I was ten and fell in head over heels in love with it. I actually didn't like The Hobbit the first time I read it when I was eight which is why i maybe love the movie so much more easily uh, a lot of the fans who loved that hobbit first reading um understandably react differently but I, I didn't like the hobbit that much but i loved the lord of the rings and i read it continually like many of us did and um, i was back at my 40th high school reunion and people were saying i read that because of you and i'm like oh yes uh, possibly you did so but well, i came out of that intense love for Tolkien's work, not as a a medievalist. In fact, the one Chaucer course I took in my uh, undergraduate English major, I ran away from because I'm I'm so terrible with languages. I came out of Tolkien's work in Nature Poet, which in Mm -hmm. the 70s was, you know, (laughs) kind of radical, uh, given the sex drugs, rock and roll, and so much of poetry. And as someone who loved science fiction and fantasy, being trained in a a discipline that in the 70s was still fairly canonical a lot of the changes that would come to literary studies had not really started where i was getting my degrees at that time they were starting other places so i really see myself as someone who came out of that culture of fandom who held on to my love for this text and it influenced me in all sorts of ways even though i'm not a medievalist um, when I, mm-hmm. I, I when I've talked before, and I collaborate with a medieval historian, Judy Ford, and so we do this sort of interdisciplinary, multi-layered sort of thing, because I'm interested in such questions as canonicity. You know, as mm-hmm. everyone knows, Tolkien's work is wildly popular, and yet critically has been stigmatized by by many academics, especially in the UK. Yes, I mean Tom Shippey's written about that the 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 frustration many um, academics feel at the love that people have for tolkien, and so I sort of without realizing it over the years, sort of set myself up and in in very active ways, the past few years have been bringing in cult, what is called cultural studies broadly into into my work as a scholar and into my work as a teacher because for me teaching and scholarship is completely sort of interwoven so the Mm -hmm. cultural studies and and some will argue that uh cultural studies as a literary theory has had a greater impact on the studies than some of the other you know critical theories that have become so popular over the past decades because when you start looking at thinking about how a work is influenced by the culture in which the writer lives and, and operates, mm-hmm. and also then how it is received, especially in later years, in other cultures. So that's why you have cultural studies and audience reception sort of going hand in hand. And really it's not that radical of a way of approaching it. The idea that uh, Tolkien was influenced by his experiences in World War I, I mean, Garth's fantastic book—that's cultural studies. Right. And right. The fact that he was influenced by his scholarship—he was a medievalist—that actually comes under the, the the rubric of cultural studies, i.e., what was known about the medieval world and history and cultures right. at the time he was studying them and he was contributing to them. Mm. That's also under cultural studies. So. Right. Those of us who were trained, you know, 30, and 40 years ago in that pure new criticism with the text as objet d'art and never connected to anything mm-hmm. else, that's that's really fallen apart. So I am interested right. in the issues of how especially it was received in the United States, because I first read it in 1965, so I remember the fuss that people were making over... <laughs> Uh, this amazing book that nobody really knew what to do with, and they thought it was very, very odd and especially given tolkien 's idea of a mythology for England, what changed or, or what what elements in American culture were so drawn to it, and it was very much a text that was associated with the hippies with the environmental movements with the anti-war movements which were growing at the time that i was i was 10 when i first read it so sort of my adolescence was shaped by tolkien and by that that cultural change around me although i was living in idaho so it never really happened in idaho so in a way i've been thinking about these questions since i first started reading it and found people who who thought it was dull or boring or, or unimportant and I don't expect that everyone will like what I like to read, but I think the importance of it, the impact, um, really can't be argued against when it, it it spawned a whole genre fantasy, which didn't exist as a publishing category before then, but the whole gaming culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just everything that I see around me in science fiction, fandom, and fantasy, online and offline these days, goes back... A, to Tolkien, not the only origin of Tolkien, but obviously there was the pulp fiction and science fiction as well, but Tolkien's played a huge, huge part in it. And that in itself is controversial because people like to think of science fiction as, you know, progressive and looking ahead and, and Tolkien's work is always being seen as this retrogressive monarchical thing. So the idea of how we can think about this book, about how this text reflects discourses that were current during um, Tolkien's time, as well as what meanings we've made of it, is part of what I do. As I said, I'm teaching a cultural studies approach. I did Werewolves and Zombies last fall with a a gen ed course with my students on cultural studies. And then a few years ago, my new department head, Salvatore Tardo, uh, came and he's from Italy originally, and he was asking me about this one time because he told me, well, in Italy, and he'd never read *Lord of the Rings*. I said, "But you read science fiction and fantasy." <laughs> he says, "Yes, but in Italy, uh, you only read *Lord of the Rings* if you were part of the fascist movement." And I huh. said, "What?" <laughs> he said, "Yeah." <laughs> and, and and then one of our Italian graduate students was telling me they actually had things called Hobbit camps that he remembered that were indoctrination—you know, ideologically indoctrination camps." And I said. Because I'd heard, you know, from Doug Anderson and from other people that, you know, in Russia it was very much considered something that was passed around, you know, the Samizdat and uh, sort of method. It wasn't officially published, but it was seen as a a major um, thing to read if you were against, you know, the Soviet uh, control. And now I'm being told that in Italy it was associated with fascism. And this was, you know, when he was in college. So. I, right. I I I talked to Doug Anderson and John Ratliff and other Tolkienists and nobody, you know, knew anything about it. So I just sort of had that in the back of my mind as this very strange thing. So when um Judy Ford and I decided to do an NEH grant, uh working toward getting funding for uh, uh an NEH institute for college teachers and university teachers at the Marquette Archive in At at the university, I was doing all sorts of research, finding articles because we were taking a sort of cultural studies approach. And I actually found an article by um, a scholar on the ways in which Tolkien's work was published by one of the major. Publishers who was a fascist and how it became part of this whole discourse of Romantic nationalism and the glorious past and the elites mm-hmm. uh, And then he did a study of how the work and again It's important to realize that it's the most important thing with cultural studies saying that Tolkien's work Lord of the Rings shares some of the discourses some of the language and, and issues that fascism shared a romantic look at the past a sort of mythology of great heroes is not in any way the same as saying Tolkien was a fascist or the Lord of the Rings is a fascist work it it simply isn't the work is too complex but you can tease out ways in which that uh, certain ideas uh, romantic nationalism the idea of a nation that goes back to the original folk uh, through the myths and folk tales, which of course is what the Grimms, the brothers Grimms were doing uh, When they right. when they gathered the oldest versions of the folk tales that they could find and said this is the soul of our nation and our folk uh, Tolkien was 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 very much aware of those movements I mean he was he was looking at sort of creating his own mythology, but he was coming out of that same sort of area and Femis and, and her book is an absolutely superb uh, cultural history and intellectual history of these issues where she is tracing how these ideas were current during the Victorian Edwardian and, and up into World War One. so um, understanding that, that this is simply the ways in which text certain language certain words reflect other discourses are all connected because language is completely interconnected is, is what we're sort of teasing out so when I found uh, the article about the Italian uh fascist i was i was fascinated and in, in fact i sent it to my dean and everybody else because we thought nobody had ever written about this but i was also able to find again combing through the modern language uh, association's bibliography uh with all sorts of strange search terms i was able to find other studies uh on the the reception and copyright issues uh in a in a history of books publication on how it was brought into America. Again, a lot of the idea of how well the age paperback was illicit, and this is how it happened, people generally know about it, but here we have an article that goes into great details about the actual legal issues of the time and the timeline and what happened. And then there is uh, uh, a Russian scholar whose work was translated on its reception in Russia, which, again, completely different from what was, you know, written about how some people took it in Italy. And right. another, one who, another woman who did her PhD dissertation on the um, different fan clubs in Spain and England. Because, again, we all know Tolkien's work has been translated into 35, 40 languages. Uh, right. Each right. one has been, I mean, Doug Anderson's a great, the scholarship and slideshow on the different covers how the covers on the translations reflect those differing cultures and how they people interpret in their own ways so we're looking at the same phenomenon that the idea that different um national cultures again there'll be vast disparity within any national culture but that generally this was a popular reading of it in italy so popular that my dean uh, who when he heard i had a, a reading of uh, the Hobbit for the 75th anniversary and he came and did a reading for it, and listened to it a while. He said he was surprised at how much he enjoyed it because of all the <laughs> associations that he had in college. And it's like, right. if you were, you did not pick it up and read it unless you wanted to be associated with, with that right wing movement. So the build up of these, this research and these questions over the past few years has led to this idea that would be really fascinating to look at the scholarship that is out there. It, it's, it's, not been hugely known, maybe. Um, uh, nobody I talked to knew anything about the Italian article. Uh, looking at that to see how people have already explored some of these questions. Uh, taking Feemy's work as this wonderful base level, uh, argument about all this fantastic stuff from the issue of how the Victorian view of fairies affect Tolkien's work. Again, Right. We know it's important right. to it, but what was it about those sheries that he had them in his early poetry, and how did they become elves? How much mm-hmm. this his writing process reflected changes around him and so that's
1: yes that is that is a fascinating thing mm-hmm. to look at i mean it's one of the things that i 've been thinking about a lot as i've been i've been uh doing a lot of work in some of the classes that I've taught and some of the things I've written recently, um, with some of his earlier Mm -hmm. poetry and looking at, looking at that, looking at the the way that his terminology Mm -hmm. changes, uh, you know, the, 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 the shift from fairy to, to elf and from elfin Mm -hmm. to elven and, 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 and those things, um, you know, you can see it as sort of a, a progression of ideas in his mind, but, but exactly that, that question that you're, talking about a sort of the, the the logical follow-up question to what extent to what extent was tolkien um uh, following mirroring the changes in his culture to what extent was he reacting against his culture <laughs> to what extent uh you know were you know his his own ideas event over time contributing mm-hmm. to to the change in those perceptions um and that that whole process that interrelationship is 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 really fascinating
3: and then it also becomes how we as readers receive and read his work in the context of our own you know cultural attitudes and issues um right so part of audience reception and and as i say at the start i'm not assuming that anyone coming into the class has to know cultural studies or audience reception ahead of time and more than that i'll be telling people cultural studies and audience reception as disciplinary methodologies as ways of approaching texts are huge. I don't do a whole lot of things that are under cultural studies. Uh, what I hope to do in the class is simply introduce some key ideas. And, and part of what we'll be doing is going through The Lord of the Rings, carefully reading it alongside Femi's work. Uh, because you actually as a reader, everyone in the class will be creating their interpretation of it and their ideas about how, as you say, he was reflecting uh, certain ideas in his work, how he was reacting to them, how he was resisting. And, and I think the work has all sorts of, to steal Tom Shippey's incredibly useful word, interlaced elements of reflection right. and resistance. So we'll be. Able working through that and i'm hoping especially in the the later part of the class when we start thinking about audience reception we'll be looking at the um one reason to look at the different articles about the different national receptions is to try and foreground for ourselves that there will be different responses to the same text i mean if anyone who's been in a class where they talk about what they read and anyone who's taught a class know that everybody has some different ideas about the text. It is very much reader response. Right. We create our own reading. But it's interesting to see it played out in these, on these national levels and then to look perhaps at some of the online stuff because people are still debating significance, um, meaning, interpretation. What are the most important parts of, of the work? Uh, I always, one of my favorite parts of Lord of the Rings, and it's in my scholarship because I've done some some work on analyzing his prose in this area, one of my favorite parts is his descriptions of Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. As I said, I came out of Tolkien, a nature poet. And that's one reason why I think I so like the films, unlike many other fans and, and experts in Tolkien, is because you can complain about a lot of things with Jackson's film as, you know, perhaps being problematic, but the lands, New Zealand and yes. The lands. Yes. He um, didn't get Athelian right, but then since Athelian is my favorite place in the book, probably nobody could get it right. But the, <laughs> the, um, beauties and the the, 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 the vistas and that, and I even say heretically, that the beacon lighting scene in the film is much more powerful than Pippin seeing the lights go on. In, yes. In the book. Yes. So that's, yes. that's what film can do. So that's, I, I figured out as my reader response, I know that I tend to like the films because Jackson got what I most value about the book right in my mind.
1: Right. So that's, right.
3: that's a huge part right. of it.
1: Yeah. Well, that's great. You know, one of the things that I'm so excited about, um, you know, with your offering this course this summer is that, you know, in conversations I've had with, you know, with Tolkien fans and with students, um, there, there are so many people who are, um, you know, interested in these things or rather who sort of talk mm-hmm. about these things or in kind of vague ways aware mm-hmm. of uh, cultural factors in Tolkien's writing or th- you know things that he was engaging with or and also you know the, the the effects of the lord of the rings and reactions to the lord of the rings these are these are these are things that often come up but very rarely do people have much actual information mm-hmm. about them you know it's 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 the kind of thing that many people speak of but few people actually have studied or really know anything about or even, I, I would say even further, in some ways even really know how to study. Um, so I think it's, it's it's a wonderful opportunity for people to be able to to really learn more about that.
3: Oh, it's, an, it's immensely, I mean, that's why I say cultural studies is immensely difficult and multifaceted because it it can include elements that we attribute to social science methodologies. It can certainly include archival elements, which many people see as different from social sciences. So it's sort of multifaceted. Um and yeah, the the article on the reception in, in the U.S. and the publishing history, incredibly detailed, and the, the amount of uh, work and specialized uh, knowledge that the scholar had to bring that out just blew my mind. Um, I also have a, another, it'll be a chapter from a book we're reading. It's actually from one of the anthologies on Lord of the Rings films, being done by the the Martin Barker and other scholars who are doing this huge global reception. Um, they're doing it, there the mm-hmm. whole groups doing it on The Hobbit as well, but that but a bunch did with Lord of the Rings. But we're reading Martin Barker's essay, because even though it's in the anthology on the audience receptor for Lord of the Rings films, he writes this brilliant chapter of his personal experience in the 60s. Because he says, and he's, he's quite right about this, and this is always the danger, that for too many people, they only think about, you know, the hippies liking Tolkien as if there was nobody else in the U.S. liking it right so personal you know your personal experience as a reader or viewer can be part of this scholarship um some of my students are thrilled you know when you start talking about reader response they think you know especially the students in the 200 level courses oh boy anything i think about the book is good i'll get an a and i'm going It's more you have to analyze yourself as as well as the text, you know, your your experience as a reader, what leads you to see these things and, and how it goes. But it does allow people to bring in their own, to become conscious and reflect on their own responses to a text and their own responses to part mm-hmm. of the text. Uh, I know that's why I so love teaching Uh, team teaching with Judy when we uh, do our our Lord of the Rings together because she has uh, very different favorite parts of the book than I do because she's a medieval historian we also have very different favorite parts of the film again because of our different interests and you know our different sense of aesthetics and what moves us so you really become conscious of that but yeah I'll be telling people that it's, it's hard not to avoid the extent to which there are ideas about Tolkien's work in, in a cultural context. But even from the early days, people were you know, saying, oh, it's about World War II, it's an allegory, it's that. Right. There's a lot of right. misinformation or sort of careless commentary. You, you can't just assume that because something was happening at the same time, that Tolkien would react, perhaps, as I mind. In fact, he, he says that as well, that the, the reviewers who see World War II as the most significant event in their life ignore what it was like for people in world war one so it, right. it does lead you to be cautious about what you're trying to trying to
1: say yeah definitely well wonderful thanks so much for uh for 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 joining me here uh i'm glad we could uh sort of talk things over and i know that there are a bunch of people really looking forward to your class i'm really just delighted that that we could do this, this yeah okay, I'm,
3: I'm delighted too and i really think um this is some an area that We'll be seeing more growth of in Tolkien studies. So, uh, yeah. because going, building on the excellent work done in, the terms of medieval studies, but, uh, really, as Roland Flieger has started doing, as Tom Shippey has done, looking at Tolkien as a modern writer and thinking mm-hmm. about what it means in terms of modernism and, and some of the following issues.
1: Great! Well, I just wanted to thank Dr. Reed once more for the talk, and I'm delighted that we can offer her class at Mythgard in this summer 2014 semester. That's going to be a great opportunity to learn a lot more about the complicated relationship between the Lord of the Rings and the 20th century. If you're interested to learn more about Professor Reed's class, go to www.mythgard.org. That's M-Y-T-H-G-A-R-D dot org. And that's it for this episode of Riddles in the Dark Supererogatory. As always, thanks for listening. And Godspeed.